So part of my research is about saying, hey, we weren't primitive uh, imbeciles. You know, we actually had extraordinary sciences that sustained uh, very complex food systems and we did it on purpose. You know, <laughs> sometimes scientists will be like, oh, well, they didn't really know they were doing all this. They just accidentally were doing it. You know? Welcome back to our present future, Explorations in Regeneration. This episode is with Lila June. Lila is a poet, singer, and author who weaves together her experience and wisdom as a Diné woman, along with her studies of anthropology, human ecology, indigenous pedagogy, and her PhD work focused on pre-colonial indigenous land management and food systems. Lila is a passionate and dedicated communicator working in service for humanity to reconnect with our place as a part of nature. In this conversation, we explore the tensions between worldviews that commonly arise when discussing our predicament. We discuss some of the key insights of Lila's research and how they are being received by others. If you have not yet seen Lila's TED Talk, I highly recommend it for additional context to this conversation. And I will link to that talk as well as several other great references to learn more about Lila and her work in the description. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Lila Jo. Welcome, Lila. Thank you very much for joining me. It's a great pleasure to sit down and speak with you. And I've been a big fan and really fascinated uh, to learn about your, your research with indigenous land management uh, and food systems and a number of other topics I know you're deeply involved in, but to start, I wanted to ask if you would just introduce yourself and uh, share a little bit about your background. Yeah, so, um, yeah, at uh, so, um, my name is Lila June, and I'm from the Nanishtrachitni clan of the Dene Nation. We are also incorrectly known as Navajo, um, commonly incorrectly known as Navajo. And uh, as the Dene Nation, we are indigenous to what is now called New Mexico, Colorado, Utah, and Arizona. Um, <clears throat> that's my number one identity, you know, is that we get our clans from our mothers. So we get our last names from our mothers, not our fathers. So is, is really what and who I am from, from a Diné lens. Um, my father's mother is of Southern Cheyenne, uh, descent. My mother's father is the salt clan of the Diné and my father's father is of the Scottish clans um other european clans and things like that so um kind of a hybrid of things like most of us these days like many of us i should say um so yeah i'm i'm a musician uh sort of accidentally i just started making music and a couple of things got out there and so i travel a lot to, to music festivals and other music poetry event um, um i just finished the phd 
I did all the all the Western education stuff, the bachelor's degree, master's, blah, 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 and studied anthropology, studied education for Native youth, and most recently the doctoral dissertation is on Native land management techniques, pre-colonial Native land management techniques, um, and their corresponding food systems. Um, and yeah, no, I'm I'm just very happy to be here. And uh, I think of all the hats I wear, I just want to be a servant of the creator and a servant of the community. That's really my my vocation when you strip it all down. I'm just a servant or aspiring, aspiring servant. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing. Actually, a question I was going to ask you a little later, but now it feels like the most, um, like the best time. Can you share what is the first laughter ceremony and describe the meaning of Hongjon? You know, you do have to be careful sharing about ceremonies um, on a public platform like this, which is a good teaching in and of itself. You know, uh, a lot of native folks where we have these ceremonies, you know, and they are sacred and, and, when you mix it with podcasts and TV and um, YouTube and stuff, it, it, it becomes a whole other thing. You know, you have to be very, very careful if you share, if at all. Um, a lot of, like, for instance, a lot of our ceremonies, we prefer not to, in fact, we kind of, it's pretty strict rule, no cameras, no uh, video, videography, because the ceremony itself is so sacred. Um, we don't want to be not present for it, taking a picture. Um, and it's not really for that purpose. It's not for the purpose of showing the world somewhere else. It's for that moment. And interestingly, a lot of indigenous teachings are only passed down orally from person to person uh, or from an elder to the people um, through practice. So uh, a lot of these ceremonies uh, for better or worse, are not available on Google. They're not available anywhere on the internet. They can literally only be learned in person, in the moment. So um, it's pretty interesting if you think about it, because on one hand, we have all these endangered languages, endangered ceremonies that are, you know, at the risk of being lost. And so it would be good to record them in a way. It would be good to have some sort of record of them but on the other hand it goes against our pro cultural protocols um so the first laughter ceremony is not a suit i wouldn't say it's like on the level of like i don't know some really more esoteric knowledges um so i think i can describe it sort of cursorily or like an overview um but yeah so Diné people, um, they actually uh, honor the first laugh of a child. So when a, when a child laughs, they have a big ceremony, which I probably shouldn't go into the details too deep, but um, it involves the child um, giving salt, you know, to those around him or her or them uh, and sort of giving this gift, even though they're like too young to really hold the basket of salt, they're usually like, you know, a few months old. You're they're they're participating in a in a 
ceremony of giving. So um, yeah, they they give salts to the people at the ceremony, and um, and that's good because you know you're teaching joy very young. Um, you're you're honoring laughter. You know, to us, a laughter is to a lot of things to Diné people is not just humdrum. Oh, there's laughter, whatever we take it for granted. We're like, holy crap, what is laughter? You know, what is this? You know, what did the Diné make? What did the holy people make? this laughter thing for um i feel like a lot of the beauty of the net culture is that we stop and question and observe and and honor the even the most simple things and unpack them and be like wow this is not simple this is sacred um so teaching the child joy you know and 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 even having a whole ceremony a whole big you know event in the child's life, it's one of the major m milestones of a person's development in our culture. Um, you know, it just, it just, it's just part of, a part of our way of explaining what is valuable. Um, to us, joy is valuable, you know, which I think in most cultures, they would say that, but in American culture, it's not super high priority. <laughs> like, it's other priorities, like, like winning, and 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 conquering and getting uh and having you know those things are probably valued more than being in a state of joy um in theory those things lead to joy but um oftentimes we postpone joy uh for the sake of these other means of getting to joy um so anyways that's that and then hojol is you know a word a very famous Diné word that we've shared with the world uh it's a concept it means beauty but it also means something like joy you know the connection to the beauty of um creation uh to to, to be in alignment and participatory within the process of life um everything from breathing everything from hearing a bird everything from seeing the blue sky everything from uh, planting the corn seeds, everything from observing the the different uh, animals, you know, like those those things are to us. It's hojo. It's part. Of, it's being a part of beauty. It's being a part of and the joy of being a part of beauty. Um, and so, I mean, I think again, that's one thing Dene people can contribute to the world is like stopping and acknowledging the wonder of creation you know that that's one of our strengths is to to just to just honor the miracle and the beauty and the joy um and, and that requires a bit of slowing down that requires a bit of being grateful not taking things for granted that requires examination you know examine the sky examine the way the sky changes throughout the day examine what the dawn light looks like examine what the dusk light you know those dusk and dawn are very important to us and so those two times of day are observed very keenly and 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 well you pray during those times with corn various corn things um but um to to really examine the details of of wonder uh and the details of the magic of this of this world so that's the best i could explain it that's great thank you and 
think the what led me to to ask that and and my my curiosity and my interest or my concern for sort of the the collective culture is this the roots of the worldview and how I'm sure this relates to your your research and your work on food systems and land management is that at some point it's going to con- confront other worldviews and what you've what you've just shared on ho- this meaning of Hongjon and this just this beauty and and participation in the mystery and the all of the fantastic um, parts of life that um, I don't think there is an equivalent to what you've shared about the laughing ceremony. It's certainly not how I grew up. I mean, I had a very loving family and we celebrated joy, but it wasn't encapsulated in a, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't held in its own unique container for, you know, honoring your relationship with life. And somehow I feel like that, you know, maybe there are others, but it seems like a very good one. Just this, this love for life and this love for the participation in life. We need more invitations into that worldview um, to help make progress into these bigger problems um, or bigger challenges that we face. And there's no shortage of those in terms of water, food, security, our relationships with each other, all of these things. So, um, yeah, I just uh, admire that. And it's um, thank you for sharing. It's very, it's very encouraging to know that that uh, exists and is carried forward. You're welcome. Thank you for listening. Yeah. So I'm curious to get into sort of the next steps of how your research is being received. But before jumping ahead, just for the conversation, can you give a a brief overview of what you've been studying in terms of land management and food systems and sort of the main themes there? And then now we can move forward from there. Yeah, it started out with an elder telling me, you know, we used to manage this continent extensively. Uh, we we densely populated the continent. Um, he said our foods were smaller, but they were more nutrient dense, still are in many places. Um, and he was saying that the notion that this continent was isolated before Columbus is also false. Everyone and their mom was here before Columbus. Um, uh, the notion that we just got here with the Bering Strait is false, which turns out it, we've been unequivocally disproven that, which is fun. Um, and just really beckoning me to shatter these myths that are so politically charged, you know, because if if Native people didn't, you know, manage the land, didn't cultivate certain species, didn't manage chestnut groves, didn't manage oyster estuaries, didn't manage abalone farms you know if we didn't um work with soil management and and creating topsoils purposefully you know um if we didn't purposefully augment you know buffalo habitat with our with our fire and and all these incredible technologies ecological technologies that we had in practice if we didn't do all that then it's easier for the colonizer to say Oh, you know, nothing much was happening here before we got here and everything was terra nullius, everything was virgin land, everything was wilderness. Um, you know, 
so we didn't really destroy anything because there was nothing here. Um, and it sort of sanitizes the consciousness of colonial society. Like, okay, we didn't we didn't murder anything because there was nothing here. There weren't even that many people here. There were just a few Indians running around. When, when in actuality, there was massive civilizations here doing incredible work. Um, and not only that, but by their own rules and by their own laws back in the day, um, if you you could only own land if you used it. It was like ownership by use because they knew private property didn't make sense. John Locke, Thomas More, the Romans, they were trying to fantasize this notion of private property. So they said, well, everything belongs to God because they were all, you know, Thomas More and um, John Locke were Christians back then. So they knew everything belonged to God, but they said, well, the labor of a man belongs to himself. So if he labors on a land, then it becomes his through his own labor. Um, and I can hear stuff in the background. Maybe you could mute while I'm speaking. Um, but um, there you go. Cool. Um, so, um, yeah. So as soon as a person would labor on the land, such as till a field or whatever, it by their theory, by their legal rationale, it became theirs. So when they came here and they saw Native people using all this land, you know, and cultivating and, and, and laboring on it and, and shaping it by their own rules, this was our land. And so it made it even more challenging to say, oh, this is a vast, empty space, ready for colonize, ready for someone to just claim it, you know, and these Indians aren't even using it, you know, that you, you hear, it must sound crazy, but they literally would write this down. They waste the land. They don't use the land. Let's put it into proper hands that will use it properly. So we don't. We have to understand that back in the day, there was a huge incentive to diminish and erase the ways in which Native people would cultivate the land. There was it was really important, actually, to colonial society to um, to to ignore, minimize, even even destroy evidence of indigenous land management. But even still, they couldn't fully ignore it because it was so obvious so you also see in the journals of diaries of different you know colonial people i'm just saying oh the indians are burning the forest again they're, they're not the forest but burning the understory of the forest again they're um you know creating these these meadows and these pastures again they're using their fire uh oh the indians are you know taking care of this amazing fishery you know they have this amazing there's even drawings of like these fish weirs and it's like huge you know estuarian infrastructures so even though they there was an incentive to diminish it a few things squeaked by and we have some uh, written records um of really extraordinary food systems and land management um but in addition to that you know we have uh, archaeological records and those are sometimes the most uh convincing right of like oh wow people harvested oysters out of the chesapeake bay for over three thousand years without fail without end uh without any pauses in the archaeological record and america has destroyed the oyster population in the chesapeake bay less than one percent of its original size in less than 300 years you know those statistics are hard to um hard to ignore you know or we find chestnut pollen in the in the record 
alongside fossilized charcoal pollen, you know, coming up at the same time and staying together at the same time, indicating that that native peoples manage these chestnut groves with routine fire, you know, to burn away the competing vegetation and and really select for these gigantic chestnut trees that that fed the whole population. So um, so part of my research is about saying, hey, we weren't primitive uh, imbeciles, you know, we actually had extraordinary sciences that sustained uh, very complex food systems and we did it on purpose. You know? <laughs> Sometimes scientists will be like, oh, well, they didn't really know they were doing all this. They just accidentally were doing it. You know? so, um, so there's that. There's also acknowledging that um, we, we had an impact on the land. We created the, the, the land that America loves so much, the top soils that were used, you know, to create um, what eventually became the Dust Bowl, you know, all those topsoils that they tilled up, those were anthropogenic soils. Those were created by millennia of routine burning. And looking at our lunar calendars, you know, the September moon is called the grass burning moon for a lot of tribes. And so just burning the grasses every September, burning the prairies actually gives life to the prairies uh, counterintuitively because it brings that ash into the soil. And from that charred, that blackened prairie, you have all kinds of nutrient-dense grasses, pyro-adapted medicines like echinacea, you know, popping up in the wake of those fires. So um, on one hand, it's about, you know, proving, uh, correcting the record of how awesome Native people were. On the other hand, it's about uh, unearthing these strategies that, um, worked back then and arguably should work today. So really giving us technologies that we could use to create sustainable food systems today. Um, but also uh, to your point, it's it's not enough to just mimic the practices. Um, we have to learn the worldview, the invisible principles, the invisible assumptions, the invisible ideas, the invisible intention you know, that that people had when they were creating these systems, which almost universally were about reciprocity, reverence, respect, um, being in service to nature rather than being the master of nature, you know, giving to these animals, or, or even the notion that animals are equal to or greater than humans. That we are animals, you know, too. Why would we be better? Why, why are we in the center of creation? Like, just because we are, you know? And reframing, like, maybe God didn't give us these big brains because he endowed us to be the rulers of creation, but rather maybe the creator endowed us with these big brains so that we could be better servants, better groundskeepers, better landscapers, better healers, better facilitators of life. Uh, and we can, we can do things, you know, no one else can burn the prairies like us. Uh, on the other hand, birds can do stuff that we can't do. Everyone has their own ecological role. Um, so really not just tapping into the practices, but tapping into the the worldview, tapping into the, uh, the, the principles, the values of that culture. Uh, those also need to be adopted by the world in general. Uh, and, and, and maybe that sounds obvious that we should be respectful, but you'd be surprised how unimportant respect is in a lot of societies when it comes to how we treat the earth. Um, and so really highlighting that for the world, saying, look, 
it's our value system that's broken. And until we heal that root, which then determines what our goals are, right? Our values determine our goals. If our value is profit maximization and self-aggrandizement, then our goal is to be a YouTube star and to have a profitable business, right? If those are our values, our goals will be will then follow suit. And then our strategies will then follow that. And, and, and then our society will reflect those strategies. And so, but it's all starting with the values. So if we don't fix that rudder of the boat of our society to be more healthy, to be more dignified, if you will, more civilized, <laughs> to use the colonial term, um, to be more, you know, about respect, reverence, responsibility to homeland, uh, reciprocity, um, and and restraint, you know, then then we're never gonna our our physical reality is gonna continue to reflect our invisible values. Um, and until we until we work on that, which involves a lot of healing, a lot of understanding, a lot of grieving, a lot of uh, faith, letting go of control, letting go of, of our insecurities, you know, um, then we're not gonna see a different society. So that's sort of the research in a nutshell. Sorry, that was a bit rambly, but uh, yeah, I think the, the dissertation is called Architects of Abundance. Indigenous regenerative food and land management systems and the excavation of hidden history. So it's a way super way too long title, but it gives you an idea of like the regenerative food and land management systems was really what I was zeroing in on. Yes, great. Actually, your the way you shared takes us exactly where I'm I'm hoping to to explore further. And this is like I'm very curious to hear how has your work been received by say somebody working in a more mainstream uh, water infrastructure, water conservation perspective, or a forestry perspective, or a biodiversity protection. And just to give you a more insight to my, uh, what's behind the question, and then you can riff on it however you'd like, is like, we've mechanized the world and broke it into all these parts, right? And we have all our divisions and we work within our divisions and they're all cascading down to these root philosophies and values as you were speaking about that are overdue for self-reflection. But people are all at their different stages of this reflection and everybody's busy and it's overwhelming and life is, you know, everybody wants to do good work and all, all the above, right? But then something like your work comes out and says, hey, this is incredibly compelling for some of our really big problems. And, and that's a huge invitation for a lot of people to come in and look, and so at some point, they realize, oh, wait, actually, in my worldview, there's something to reflect on. And so I wonder, kind of at that frontier in your conversations, uh, well, have you, does that resonate at all? Have you encountered these sort of frontiers? And where have been the openings, if, if you've sensed them, for um, those deeper conversations around values and worldview? Yeah, um, I think a lot of everything is about communication um, and how we communicate and how effectively we communicate. Um, I think the reason it looks like I wear so many hats, you know, as a musician, as a film a filmmaker of sorts, as a as a scholar, 
but really when I when I look at all the things that the common denominator is is communications, right? We're trying to communicate ideas, whether it's through a song or through a dissertation or through an essay or whatever or a book. Um, so I think my my job in this world is to be a communicator. Um, and and so a lot of it depends on how you communicate, right? And and one of the things that I have found helpful, uh, I don't know, I'm still learning, but is to reassure who you're communicating with that you're on their side. Um, and you you're 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 a friend of theirs and to mean it you know that's that's the, I mean, that's the hard part is to, is to mean it you know to say you know this is who this is who i am and and this is what i believe in um and so that disarms right it's a lot of a lot of the communication is about disarming you know like uh maybe a joke at the beginning or maybe um you know playfully being humble uh and sort of making a joke about yourself or something and kind of just bringing stuff back to the ground of like hey we're just a bunch of crazy people who are just trying to figure stuff out like let's figure it out together be my friend you know um so i think that's the the basis of the communication is love camaraderie brotherhood sisterhood um, and a lot of people, you know, they, they disagree with that. You know, they say, no, you know, screw these people. They've, they've done terrible things. They need to be accountable. We need to put them in, we need to corner them and interrogate them and, and get them to pay up, you know? And, um, I totally understand the rage and the anger that people feel, um, and, and, and that they want to lead with that. Uh, I totally get it. I just don't think it's effective. Um. I don't think it's going to work, <laughs> um, but I honor the rage. I, I know it's real and I know it's, it's a feeling we can't just shove down. Um, but instead I have chosen for whatever reason uh, to lead with, with fraternity for lack of a better word, uh, um, to lead with kinship and to lead with a, fa a sense of family to whomever I'm speaking with. And, as Diné people, that's the first thing we say is, you know, greetings, my kin, my kinsmen, my kinswomen, my kinspeople, you know, like, hello, look where we are, you know, where the sky and the earth meet. This is, and and I'm calling you. I don't say, hey, Jay. I say, you know, hello, my older brother. That is the proper way to address you is your kinship term. Um, and so I lead with that, like, Hey, look, y'all people, my family, whether you know it or not, y'all people, my family. So that, um, dissolves the frontier, I think considerably. Um, and, uh, once, once you establish you're on their side, there's also this other phenomenon I've noticed where maybe contrary to popular belief, most people are on the side of indigenous peoples, um, at least on a ideological level. Um, I won't say all, clearly there's, I've also heard some people say some crazy stuff. Like I've heard people tell me, 
I'm grateful that your people died in the genocide because if not, we wouldn't have America. So thank you for the blood you all spilled so that we can all be. So I, there's some folks that are just a lost cause. They're never going to possess the empathy required <laughs> to, um, to have any constructive conversation. I think that's just a fact. Um, but I'd say the other majority are are eager to figure out how do we heal the the disgusting, painful, terrible way that Native people were treated at to create this place. You know, how are we going to do that? So I also have that on my side as a communicator, right? Like people are, they want to. They might not always have a safe place to figure that out or the courage to confront some of the scary stuff or whatever, but they want to. And, and they, they have no idea how. And, and, and my ancestors made it easy for me, right? My ancestors were, talk about beautiful people. I mean, even in the face of all that they experienced, they held themselves with such dignity, you know, with such poise. Um, with such incredible wisdom and 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 and, and beauty, um, and they held onto their hearts, you know, and we still have our hearts intact after everything that's happened to us. You know, ninety eight percent of us getting wiped out. So, so I also have that on my side as a communicator because when people hear about Native American stuff, quote unquote, they're like, oh, intrigued, or they're like, huh, cool. I've you know I've. I've heard about y'all and I've heard that y'all are pretty awesome, you know? So um, there, there's sort of that on my side as well to communicate these things. So um, all of that creates an environment and a climate in which we can start working in the soil of our belief system. Uh, I think I have a very unique positionality as a native woman to really to earn the trust of the audiences that we speak to and to um, and to start inserting these new ideas, to start um, seeding these new, these old but new to some ways of, of understanding the world. Um, and so all of that is to say that I don't experience much resistance. <laughs> I don't, I think um, for better or worse, uh, I've, found a style of communication that is facilitatory of of connection of uh, un mutual understanding of breaking up open horizons of what we thought was possible um and through that creating alliances you know now does the head of fish and wildlife understand what i'm saying honestly probably so if they were to watch the ted talk on youtube about native land management, they'd probably be like, oh, holy crap, that's amazing. Um, and to speak about it backed by Western science, right? That's what these folks believe in, you know, um, for better or worse. Um, and so if you have your archeological evidence, if you have your uh, archival evidence, if you have your, um, you know, paleoecological evidence, then, then you're using their own tools to speak to them and they're, they're, they appreciate it. You know, they're like, okay, cool. That's all I needed. I just needed you to show me a fossilized pollen graph. That's all I needed. I just needed the proof. Uh, once you give them the proof, they're like, oh, okay. 
This is great. So I think that we're we're in a space where as indigenous peoples, we're finally able to communicate this stuff. Because that was another issue with colonization. There was a huge language barrier, right? You can imagine, you know, all these Europeans coming here and like we just did not understand each other. <laughs> just like we didn't understand them. They didn't understand us. And 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 so we're making all these assumptions and lack of communication and 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 taking advantage of that too, right? Like taking advantage of the fact we couldn't speak English and and using that to just bully the crap out of us uh, in so many ways. Um, but now we're at, now we're five hundred years later. We've gotten their darn doctor degrees. We've gotten, you know, we've we've understood their science. We we still know our own science. Um, and people like Robin Wall Kemmerer are writing braiding sweetgrass. People like Yvette Collin are doing this horse research. Um, people are doing collaborative archaeology with Native communities. So we're finally at a place where we're like, all right, let's sit down. Let's talk about this. We got it. We, we know how to say it. And, and it shows, you know, there's incredible paradigm shifts going on because Native peoples are in a place now where we're like, okay, we know how to say what we've been trying to say for 500 years in a way that you're going to understand. Yeah, I, I, I'm thinking about the the head of fish and wildlife. So imagine, or equivalents in other national level or large level uh, policy or, or organizational structures. I wonder, is do you feel like that is the most effective lever or, or, or area to focus? Um, or is it within, I mean, if I feel like we're, we're far from a point where I can imagine entire regions and landscapes getting off private property and coming under a collective management system, even if that is the direction and, and cultural conversation that, should be had in the in the meantime is it a bottom-up cluster of people that live in the same watershed is it both you know is it all fronts at the same time go for all the policy levels and institutional levels and 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 meet the meet the wildlife management meet the water management meet them where they are keep pulling them towards a common worldview but know that it's going to be incremental baby steps or is it more Let's focus on this region where we have really more aligned um, people and community uh, with with capacity um, to get examples that can be bigger showcases that help inspire them to take this action. Um, that's not really a specific question. I'm just sort of reflecting on what I'm hearing. I wonder, do you think about um, do you think about where to put your focus, or is it more of a this is the message for anyone and everyone um, as you want to bring you this knowledge to, to the rest of the world. I think it's a really good question. It's the question perhaps like, okay, that's very sweet, but how do we implement it? How do we operationalize this in today's world, you know, which is where it's at, like you said. Um, uh, a couple things come to mind. One is, Yes, um, as people, you know, we can band together to do bioregional things, uh, 
collective watershed management, um, food shed cooperatives, so collapsing our private land holdings into one pilot project, you know, um, even if it's like five neighbors who say, hey, we live in an ecosystem, don't we? We're not on little isolated parcels of land. We're actually part of something bigger than ourselves. How do we tap into that? How do we honor what's going on around us? How do we manage it collectively? Um, that is one pilot project that I often suggest, although I know it's way easier said than done. Um, but the other thing is national park systems are are sort of like a perfect place for these um, experiments to go on. And we, we just had a huge breakthrough the 29 Palms Indigenous Nation in Southern California uh, just recently uh, received um, official co-management status of Joshua, uh, Joshua Tree National Park. Um, and so this is very exciting. Wait, let me fact check that. Is it Joshua Tree or Mojave? Uh, That's amazing. Yep. Yeah, it is. Yep. Okay. So, um, Joshua Tree National Park. So, so the so the wheels are turning, um, and things are changing slowly. And and I think the national park system, which is now headed for the first time ever by a native man, uh, under the Department of the Interior, which is for the first time headed by a native woman insane you know i mean it shouldn't be so insane but it, it is um in a good way you know um insanely good uh but so what we have here is is the national park system which is you know hundreds and hundreds of acres of land that are now ready if we were open to it to at least co-management with indigenous peoples um but i'm hoping eventually will be fully managed by indigenous peoples at least pilot projects. And I think pilot projects are another inroad that we can truly make at this time. Uh, inroads that are not um, out of reach, you know, not pie in the sky, but pilot projects. One of the things this elder told me when I first started my research on in this topic was native people own enough land to change the way the world thinks about food and water. In other words, you don't need a lot of land to demonstrate that these principles work. You don't need a lot of land to change the way people think. Um, and so I think that that's sort of where we're at. We're at a place where we can do small projects that have a big impact, you know, and, and you see that all the time, like uh, little paradigmatic shifts that are catalyzed by little places. <laughs> Or, you know, and, and places that sort of open up our mind of what's possible. Um, and even this Joshua Tree co-management thing. It's just one little national park in Southern California. But imagine how much that's sparking people's ideas across the country, right? Of like, hmm, maybe we could do that here. Um, you know, and how that, that first co-management um, experiment, if you will, is going to break the ground for so many other ones to come. So um, I think that's a, a big piece for all of us to know. So the last thing I'll say is that I'm loving 
this metaphor of the bird bath. Um, the bird bath is a bath that humans create for birds. They create like a little thing and they put water in it and the birds come and they can take a bath. So what is that? That to me is humanity giving a gift to non-humans. That is humanity for no reason. They're not getting anything out of it. Maybe they get to watch birds take a bath, but really it's, it's to give the, a service, um, a very tiny amenity <laughs> to the birds around you, which are not caged, which can come and go as they please. And that type of relation, that that metaphor, I think, is the crux of what my dissertation was talking about, is how do we give services to non-humans the same way we give services to single mothers, the same way we give services to people with disabilities, the same way we give services to uh, children, <laughs> uh, elders, you know, um, you know, how do we how do we create departments that are part of serving, providing services to non-humans? That, that's what our truest nature is, I think, is to be allies, to be um, in a sense like like supporters and givers to these animal plant populations. Um, and so all of us can create a bird bath, you know, that's something we can all do. Um, and I almost want to start like a bird bath competition, you know, like maybe it's not a bird bath, but it's some kind of service to the, to the animals around you. Maybe you're going to plant milkweed because so many animals love to eat milkweed, including butterflies. Maybe you're going to plant a bunch of pollinators in your front yard and just having this competition of like, what kind of innovative, sweet gift can you give to the non-humans around you? Um, and that's something we can all do. And I think even just doing a bird bath or even having a bird bath competition, it's starting to, it's starting to seed consciousness of like, hmm, maybe we can give a gift to the, to the non-human world, like giving a, um, like giving a, a flower, you know, to someone for no reason, just to say, I love you. You know, uh, that's, I think that's what the earth deserves right now. It's just more flowers at her doorstep. Um, and so uh, that's something we can all do too. Um, but yeah, in terms of where I'm focusing my energies, I think just, I don't have a, I mean, that's the thing about YouTube, right? There is no Heart, anyone can access it right um and so it's been very joyful for me and very interesting to me to see who's been watching it and it's, it's not always who you think it would be you know it's it's folks who don't have any prior interest in this stuff are like it's coming across their desk magically thank goodness and and they're being influenced by it and it's gonna it's gonna activate their behavior in a certain direction that's that's great to hear that it's reaching so many people and i just love the the bird bath example and idea of spreading it's so uh it's such a good example of this invitation to fall in love with the joy of life and the beauty of life and to give back and to and to feel it and i think in my own relation to these themes and our challenges. I, I have so much more faith in the example that is just more attractive, the, the, the context that is naturally inviting, that will 
bring, pull people in instead of push them push them out. And I think there's, you know, this is kind of got its fractal layers to it. And as we, we think about land management and food systems and there's the notion of stewardship, to give it a concrete example, that I think depending on how you define it, if you have a... Um, a more traditional sustainability perspective of, of stewardship. I feel like we are definitely not there, but that that may be our next um, base that we landed and sort of like collective consciousness, but that won't necessarily bring with it the birdbath. And in, in terms of relation of how we relate to what we are stewarding. And so there's a question in me of how far is far enough where are we in the world right now in all this crazy complexity and fragilities that we're facing with ecological, climate, planetary boundaries, geopolitical, all of our... I mean, it's incredibly fragile. And so there's this tendency to go towards um, quick linear solutions when really it feels we need to slow down a lot. And at the same time, a huge amount of discernment for how far is far enough. Um, I don't know if that made sense, but I wonder if it did... Uh, if you could talk about how you relate to this question of how far is far enough for what's next from today. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> another thing I was going to say on the last question is that um, maybe this is too pessimistic of a view, but I'm not sure if humanity will change to the extent that it needs to without some major catastrophes um, to push them in that direction. Um, let's take, for example, the climate crisis, as some people call it. Um, you have people been telling us for decades, there's a cliff right there. Don't keep driving. We're going to go off the edge of the cliff. <laughs> since the 80s right people have been very clear about how this is going to lead to this and in the past 30 40 years as we've known have we changed no not at all um and so okay i guess we've changed a little bit you know but by and large, not far enough, as you say. <laughs> uh, anywhere near the, the amount of methane and CO2 and uh, blah, 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 you know, the emissions that that are are going out are not decreasing. Uh, the, not, not even the rate in which we emit it is decreasing. You know what I'm saying? Um, are we trying to? Are we, are we making efforts? Yes. Yeah. Certain sectors of society are trying with all their might. Are we as a species doing what is rational? No, <laughs> we are not. So point being, you can show people all the graphs in the world, all the scary statistics in the world. But I think possibly until we really feel on a personal level, the consequences of our actions, which we are starting to, and oftentimes, sadly, the most marginalized peoples feel it first. Um, 
only then are we going to really wake up. Like, for example, COVID, right? It hit people right in the wallet. You know, some people made money, but a lot of people lost money. Um, it, it, it forced people to, to change their entire life, you know. And it's those things I think we learn from the most is the things that really um, knock us out of our norm, interrupt our business as usual. So uh, I don't know if this is true or if I'm being too pessimistic, but I, I almost feel like these catastrophes we're about to uh, experience in the next hundred years, they are our gift. They are our wake the heck up. You know, they are our slap in the face. <laughs> they are our wake up call. Um, and it's going to be hurtful. It's going to be painful. There's going to be suffering. But apparently that's the only thing that's going to wake us up because we've known for almost 40 years exactly what was going to happen. We're, indigenous people have been telling people for hundreds, thousands of years, different parts of the world have been telling people like this is not going to work. This hierarchical model, this inse masculine insecurity expressing itself as domination is not going to work. Um, none of that's going to work. Um, but until we really feel why it won't work, I'm not sure if we're going to change fast enough or far enough. Uh, I hope I'm wrong. I hope people will decide they want to change stuff um, before it all you know, goes to pieces. Um, but I think our civilization, our human machine is going to have to experience a profound uh, hit, hit, hit a wall before we're going to stop doing what we're doing. And it's happened before. That's maybe the good news is human civilizations have collapsed before and they have learned from it. Um, they have learned from their own arrogance. They have learned from their own mistakes. Um, arguably, parts of Europe, you know, World War II just rocked them to their core, you know, in the, in the most terrible way you could imagine. Just, and, and, and now clearly war hasn't ended, but there's a, there's a pretty almost institutionalized notion that like world wars are not good. <laughs> um, we don't, we want to avoid that. Of course, they are still exploiting all kinds of places all over the world. And the war is anything but ended. I'm not trying to say that. But I'm just saying people did learn from that. They learned the, the horror of war in a very big way. Um, so anyways, I don't know if that answers your question. But that's sort of some of my thinking is that I don't think we're going to go far enough to, to avert major catastrophe. You know, I don't I don't think. I don't think we're. If, if if the past few decades is is any indication, I don't think we're. I don't think we have the foresight or the, or the energy, or the desire, to go far enough, fast enough. Well, what I'm feeling right now, listening to may what I want to share maybe would be just even more depressing, or give a a little line of of. Um, of hope or or joy is that I, I see. I see us hitting multiple repeating walls. 
and and the likelihood of you know one massive climactic one um, being less probable, and that at each one of those it's going to be a moment of uh, double down on old patterns or embrace some level of what's been growing at the periphery, and that for the most people like we were talking about earlier are open to individually philosophically, but all of the layers of norms within how society works isn't built for embodying those values. And so how we can build out and create these, you know, weave the catchment for new systems so that it's not uh, just repeating the cycle uh, again. I think that's, that's how I see um, my own work and the work of the next few generations is do our damn best to create as much opportunity to build upon in a better direction as these things hit their walls and, and, and begin to, to compost themselves or, or, or prove un insufficient. Um, but I have a fear associated to that of this sort of vacuum of ideology. And this is where I think the, uh, or, or vacuum of worldview is this double down, um, notion. And, um, being a communicator, working on sharing these these values, these stories. How have you reflected on the overall narrative structure and the culture, and particularly the hero's journey, as this kind of like persistent um, frame, and that it's 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 an individual story to to a large degree, and there's a solution. There's a there's kind of like a win, right and in my own journey and relating to these these problems, I, I'm feeling more and more like it's it's not a problem with a solution. It's a predicament with a set of potential actions, and we're moving into a complex system, and we hope to contribute towards a better direction, towards a living systems, embodied worldview and culture, but it's going to be messy, and we're just going to keep reassessing. Um, and so it really doesn't seem like a good fit for that storytelling framework. Um, how have you thought about the narratives and the way in which um, we can bring some of the values that can serve us uh, going forward into the future. Well, let me ask you this. <clears throat> How do you think indigenous worldviews were born? Um, from what I understand, they were not born of already being enlightened. <laughs> They were born from catastrophe. They were born from war. Um, the Haudenosaunee people of the Northeast that we admire, that created, you know, or rather heavily influenced our notion of democracy, right? Uh, that the founding fathers came here and saw the way the Haudenosaunee, the Iroquois Confederacy was operating and saw, wow, what if what if we didn't have monarch, you know? And, and how many people know that America, as we know it, this government system of the people governing themselves is an indigenous ideology that they copied, you know? They didn't have any blueprint for that. They needed to see us doing it. So point being, um, that, that Haudenosaunee Confederacy, they have a prophet called the Peacemaker who came. And, and, and they have this great law of peace and it's very sophisticated. 
Um, they're led by their clan grandmothers, you know, very sophisticated society. But why did a peacemaker need to come? You know, because there was so much war. And so my point is that these um, worldviews, these native worldviews that we that we know and love that are what we feel like we need, they didn't come from people already knowing what to do. They came precisely from people who were lost and who felt the pain of being lost and had to, were forced to create an alternative worldview if they were going to survive. Um, in other words, trial and error, you know, that's how these things are created. And so, and my point is, I think all of humanity is capable, I would hope so, is capable of inventing, amending, transforming worldviews that can help our society uh, be healthy. And um, it's through the war, through the destruction of our food system, through the chaos that we're experiencing now that we are being propelled towards <laughs> something that works. And a lot of people say, what is indigenous science founded on? You always hear this. They say it's founded on millennia of observation, millennia of trial and error, millennia of screwing up <laughs> and realizing, oh, that doesn't work. Uh, learning, trial and erudition, as my elder says, uh, Filmer Bluehouse. So um, it's through this uh, healing, it's through this catastrophe that I think we're we're capable so I don't think there's going to be a, I do, I do believe what you're saying, the double down thing, right? But the, the, the double down thing only works for so long. It's sort of like an addict, right? Like they, they just keep burrowing themselves down and they keep trying to do whatever little things they can do to keep their lifestyle going until they hit rock bottom, right? Rock bottom is where you have nowhere left to run. You are stuck. And the only way out is to confront yourself and as a former addict, that's what I had to do. You know, I, I was um, 20 years old when I hit rock bottom in a very big way and I had to get sober. I started doing drugs when I was 11. So I think we're really similar to that uh, addict. You know, we're, we're addicted to oil, we're addicted to fame, we're addicted to money, we're addicted to our insecurities um, or rather soothing our insecurities, um, being complacent of not dealing with our insecurities we're addicted to all of that. And so you can only do that for so long until you hit rock bottom. And I think when we do hit rock bottom, we are going to be forced to invent these new worldviews. So I don't think there's, there may be a vacuum, although obviously indigenous cultures can help support that, but um, that vacuum can always be filled through the innovative <laughs> uh, qualities that our species possesses. Yeah, absolutely. I think I'm just looking at the clock here, so I'll I'll ask uh, the final question, following up on this notion. Um, imagine you were called upon to speak to future generations and help craft the outline of a general education. Feel free to rename that if you like, but about the values to lean into what you're going to need to face what's coming. We're facing this confrontation and sort of 
hyperclimactic moment of clashing of worldviews while we need to rebuild our systems that are spackled with good intentions and conflicting views. Um, what is the foundation? What are parts of the foundation um, that you would offer as good places to to build up our our education? Well, maybe this sounds cliche, but love, you know, compassion. That is the ultimate North Star, you know, compassion. There was an elder who was giving a teaching and all these people came to, to receive the teaching. And uh, as young man even brought his notebook and his um his pen and paper and, and the elder said, okay, you're ready? It was his turn to talk to the elder. And he was like, yes, you know, I'm ready. And he said, okay, ready? I'm going to give you the secret to the universe, you know, kind of was, was the vibe everyone had. And he said, okay, write this down. Love, yes, love, is the answer, period. You know, but that's the answer. And I know people disagree with me on that. I'm like, oh, you and your love stuff, Lila, got to be stuff. Put, using the kid gloves all the time. But I think holding each other accountable is love. And you can do it lovingly. Um, being there for someone who doesn't deserve it is love, you know? And, and that love can transform things. Love can change the world. And compassion, if it is the root of our systems, we cannot, we cannot fail to like Lauren Hill said, to make a better situation. If we love ourselves, we cannot fail to make a better situation. And so um, I think I think that that's that it's beautifully simple, actually. Um, <laughs> but then the, the the implementation of it can be a little bit uh, complicated. Right? How do you love yourself after you've been raped? How do you love yourself after you watch your mom, watch your dad beat up your mom? How do you love yourself after you, you know, done so much drugs and maybe stolen things? Um, that's a little more complicated, but to know that that's the goal, you know, is to love yourself unconditionally, to love others unconditionally through all of our antics and shenanigans, you know, like that, that's a good, that's a good start. Um but if you're talking about a general curriculum, a general education, I, as if I'm one to say, you know, I'm such a baby and all of this, but I would say, you know, uh, to, to be good to women, to be good to children, to be good to elders, to make spaces for men to cry uh, or feel whatever they're feeling in a safe and non-judgmental place. Men need more spaces to feel desperately. Um, to care for non-humans, you know, our soul is elevated. I really believe that's one of the things that elevates our souls. We care for animals, and plants, things outside of our own species. Um, that that those are the those are the core things, you know. Honor two spirit relatives, who you know, don't don't judge them you know, to be kind to them. Uh, another another big thing within Native culture is to honor those with disabilities, which funnily enough is actually most of us, you know. 
it might not be visible disabilities, but uh, the disability community is large and, and they deserve our support. Um, everything from me who has a hard time reading, you know, I needed the accessibility features on my computer to finish my dissertation. And thank goodness that they had those, you know. Um, uh, to be able to get the 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 words to speak to me off the page, you know, to to highlight it and it'll speak it to me. You know, I can I can hear stuff. I just can't read stuff in in big chunks at a time. My my brain doesn't process information that way. Um, so those would be the core curriculum, you know, like to be good to children, to be good to elders, to be good to those with disabilities, to be good to those who are less fortunate, you know, simple stuff, you know, to be good to animals and plants, you know, get back to the basics. And people might say, oh, that's, that's so stupidly simple, Lila. Okay, well, why are all of our elders in nursing homes? If it's so simple, it's so easy. Why are they not a priority? Um, if, if children are so important, why are, why are teachers paid so poorly, you know? Um, th this would be the basics that we apparently, even though we can send, you know, whoever to, to space and have telescopes that can see the farthest star, we can't seem to see the people right in front of us. Uh, and even though we have these incredible technologies, we can't seem to figure out the most basic thing of paying a teacher, you know, properly. Um, so I think these are the things we're going to have to get good at. And these are the teachings we're going to have to put at the core of our of our society. And I, I think we can. And I'm excited to, if nothing else, go down swinging, you know, give it our best shot. Those are wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, maybe simple, but far, far from easy. And what was echoing in me is this hurt people hurt people and once you other something and separate from something you just keep separating 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 but once you once you begin to connect then you're inspired to connect more and um i was just having a conversation the other day about diet and uh i was vegan for some time and anyway describing that that transition really wasn't um hard past the couple first couple of weeks because then it's just what your body wants you know i don't prescribe any specific diet for anybody but it's just to say that the subconscious the habitual patterns that we have i mean if we if we got, all got into a rhythm of love and unconditional caring and compassion it probably wouldn't take too long to start to uh, start shifting yes yes thank you jay appreciate being here thanks for having me and um thank you, so thank you all for your time hope it was helpful and uh you know, have a beautiful day and, and uh, we'll be in touch. Do you want to share any particular place? I'll, I'll put a couple links to some of your talks in your website, but is there any particular place people should look for you? Um, for better or worse, I'm just all over the internet. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know, maybe I'm sure I've said some stupid things somewhere on the internet, but, uh, but uh, lilajune.com might be a good place to start. L-Y-L-A-J-U-N-E.com. A book of poetry published called Lifting Hearts Off the Ground. If you want to buy it from Common Word Publishing, uh, all proceeds go to Native-led projects. 
Um, so yeah, those are some places to start. Okay, great. Lila, thank you so much. And I wish thank you, you unconditional love and energy on all of your work and, and inspired to know more about everything you've been up to. Thank you, dear. Have a great day and we'll be in touch. You too.